Psalm 33, I'll read for us. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to him, to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him uh, with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fill the Lord, fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plan of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deed. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Uh, so one of my goals for some time was, has been to preach from the Psalms. And I think the Psalms is another one of these parts of the Bible that is neglected. Yeah, it's rarely used as sermon material. This was not always the case. Uh, in the time of ancient Israel, the Psalms would have been the most well-known part of the Scriptures. In fact, uh, the New Testament quotes the Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. So there really is a stark contrast between the way we treat the Psalms versus that of ancient Israel and the early Christians. And I, I think your reticence to explore the Psalms uh, is a result of three problems. So first, the Psalms are poetry, and poetry is hard. Uh, reading ancient poetry is even harder. And so it's understandable that we have a hard time reading ancient poetry because we're just not trained to read it well. But second, I think our modern mindset makes reading poetry hard. You know, poetry is about a lot of stuff that we tend to undervalue. Uh, it's about emotions. It's about impressions. It's about experiences. And, you know, rarely does poetry, and particularly the Psalms, make a distinct point. Poetry prefers to leave us with ideas, with comparisons or contrasts that we are meant to meditate on. You know, we want to get to the point. And so often when we interact with the Psalms, we want to cut through all the messy metaphors and imagery so that we can uncover the proposition or doctrine that the Psalm is trying to communicate. Yet, 
that's entirely the wrong way to read poetry. And it's precisely why uh, when sermons from the Psalms are attempted, they usually come across as dull and stale. Now, part of this is because poetry is really weird. Uh, actually, the, uh, uh, the youth and I, I kind of tried this out, on, uh, some of this material out of them. We kind of talked about this. You know, poetry uses this really weird language. It's really strange language. It's different. It makes weird comparisons. Uh, it's not at all how we talk or think, right? Yet, I think that's actually the point of poetry. Because poetry is trying to uh, jar us. It's trying to expand our mind. It's trying to stretch us and break us out from our normally daily experiences and thoughts. Because by doing so, it can get us to see the world or maybe an idea in just a different, new and fresh way. And this is a good thing. Um, I would actually argue that Sunday worship actually performs a similar function. Because what are we doing? We're, we're, we're coming together. This is, this is different from our normal activities of, of dropping kids off, uh, making dinner, uh, going to work, exercising, and making sure we get enough sleep. I mean, uh, a church is kind of a weird place. You know, we get together and some guy stands up and talks. Uh, we sing hymns. Uh, we recite a, a creed. We have a, a communion. These are like strange things. But we stop during the middle of the week and we do them. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because we need to think of something outside of just our normal daily activities. To, 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 to see God, to see that we're part of a bigger uh, world than our daily experience. Okay? And uh, so if, if you kind of think about it this way, it makes perfect sense that the Psalms and worship would go together as they did in ancient Israel. And so that's why the Psalms are so widely quoted. The Psalms were fundamental to ancient Israelite liturgy. They would have been the most well-known parts of scripture as we talked about. And unlike us moderns, the ancients understood something that we have lost about it, what it means to actually understand or know something. You see, we think uh, understanding or knowing is about standing outside of, a, of something and kind of objectively grasping it. We tend to think that if we can define a subject, that that means we know it. However, for the ancients, knowing meant something different. It meant knowing in wonder. There was a, there was a sense of mystery to it. Um, there was a sense of connection. Their concept of knowing was much more relational than ours. And I think that one way we can think of it or kind of understand this difference is, is think about how we know another person. You know, I can tell you all kinds of facts about Tamsin, all right? I can tell you, you know, everything, all these uh, things about her. But if I tell you that, that doesn't really mean you know her, know her the way I know her. I know her because of the emotions I have with her. I know her because of the way that uh, she has impressed herself on, the, the, on my life and the experiences that we've had together. That's what it means for me to know my wife. That is a different order of things than knowing something the way we think of knowing a fact or an objective or a proposition. Uh, we don't know these things as a subject who stands outside and views it as an object but is a person who interacts, responds, and is changed by something. 
And it's that kind of knowing, I think, that the Psalms is trying to help us achieve. So it's really a deeper way of just really understanding who God is. But I think it's almost, it's like bustles that we don't use. And that's why we have such a hard time. So my point in, in saying this is kind of an introduction is because I want us to start like working out on this, you know, trying to see, use these Psalms as a way. Now, this can be hard um, to, to, to discuss in a sermon because, you know, frequently this is how our sermons work. We make a few points, right? And uh, hopefully they all start with the same letter. Or they form some kind of acronym. Uh, and they end with a conclusion and maybe a few points of application. That's how, that's how our sermons work. That's a, it's a very modern way of doing things. You know, it kind of works for PowerPoint or something like that. But like, come on, like who likes PowerPoint, right? Um, so let's get excited about poetry. Poetry is different than that. Poetry doesn't reach like uh, a set conclusion necessarily. Uh, often it just wants to leave us with an idea like an impression, a thought, maybe even a contradiction, like a paradox to wrestle with. And, and that doesn't fit in our typical sermons, you know? But I think it is the great strength of, of poetry in the Psalms. And, you know, think about it, though. Um, if you think about, like, maybe one of your favorite works of culture, and that could be anything. It could be a TV show. It could be a book. It could be a song. It could be a movie. It could be any story that you know. You know, you think about it, the ones you return back to, the ones uh, that you watch over and over again are not ones that reach a clear and obvious conclusion. They are works that you wrestle with, that you uh, approach from different angles at different times in your life and with different experiences, right? They are works that you turn over and over again in your mind and whose ideas stay with you. And maybe their meaning even changes over time. I mean, you know, uh, of course, you know, uh, Chris and I love to talk in uh, Star Wars, right? Like, you know, when you're a kid, you like the droids and then you start liking the, the action and the battles and things like that. But as you get older, you start thinking about like the nature of good and evil and like what it means and, and you know, uh, all these kind of stuff. And you start to see connections with other mythologies and so, so the idea of this story changes. Now, you know, that's one I pick, but uh, all of us can probably pick something. There's probably a, a song that maybe meant something to you at one time in your life and now means something different uh, because you've grown and those ideas have grown too. Um, now, so that's one point about the Psalms. Here's another point about the Psalms that I think we need to talk about. So I kind of want to kind of set, this is kind of an introduction to the Psalms as much it is, as it is about Psalms 33. So another point about the Psalms is there's a lot of them, okay? Um, and they're very different. And I think this is another important feature of the Psalms because we need to understand as we talk about the Psalms that no one Psalm is going to say everything. And so ultimately, when we read the Psalms, we're reading them within dialogue with one another and really in ourselves and in our particular context. And that means the Psalms may not speak to us uh, each in the same way. And they might not even speak to us individually at different points in our life. OK, so but, you know, that's kind of the nature of literature in general. That's kind of how culture works. Uh, things speak different to us at different times. So, you know, we may read this psalm and it really may not really click with you. It may not do anything. Uh, that's okay. Maybe the next one will. 
Uh, maybe some other time in your life you'll think back to you know this psalm that didn't mean much to you, but now you're in a different place, and now it does mean something to you. That's how these kind of things work. This is this is how how culture works. Um, you know, so think about music you listen to, for example. You know, sometimes a sad song is going to speak to you. It's like that's where I am. And so you listen to the sad song and you're like, you're moved by it. And that's what you need to hear. You know, sometimes I need to listen to some Hank Williams, right? Uh, other times it's, uh, you know, that's not what you want to listen to. And it, it, that's how it works. Uh, the Psalms are the same way. They're sad Psalms. There's Psalms that deal with difficulty. There's Psalms of praise. Uh, and so my point is we actually know how to do this. We just don't do a very good job of it in the church. And I think a lot of it's just because of the limitations we put on, on how we do a sermon. Now, as part of this introduction, I want to impose some order onto the Psalms, just some things to help us to kind of, kind of get this point about this diversity uh, and, and how they interact with one another. And so uh, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, uh, whose name is Walter Brueggemann, he's developed what I think is a pretty helpful classification of the Psalms, okay? So he divides the Psalms into three groups, and he calls them Psalms of Orientation, Psalms of Disorientation, and Psalms of New Orientation. And what he means by this is, is pretty straightforward. You know, uh, Orientation Psalms are ones that praise God. Uh, they look around and see the goodness in the world. Uh, disorientation are the opposite. They're the ones that look at the brokenness of the world, uh, the disorder. And then new orientation are a little more complex. They're kind of a combination of the two. It's like almost like after you've experienced the disruption, they're more about the healing and reconciliation that results after that. So it's almost like you're going, like after you've gone through something. And so we can look at um, all kinds of different, we, we can kind of fit Psalms into, you know, roughly these three categories. Like anything, it's an oversimplification, but I think it is a helpful one. Um, Today, I want to look at one of my favorite psalms, and it's Psalms 33. I love this psalm. It's one of my favorites. And I, I think it best fits in this category of orientation. Uh, it, it expresses an ideal view of the world, uh, although not entirely so. Uh, there, there, there's some hints. Um, all of these are complex work. But its main point is to lead us uh, to think about God and to develop a sense of awe and wonder. Okay? So that's what we're supposed to do here. Now, uh, the Psalms of Orientation are a little more familiar. They're a little easier, which is why I wanted to begin our study with that. But let, let's keep in mind that this psalm is an ideal. There's no doubt that the world is not the way it is described in the psalms all the time. Uh, the psalms are, are totally aware that creation can be bad, that it's marred by sin and death. Uh, that, that it, 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 it's not necessarily a good thing all the time. And other song, psalms will deal with that issue. Trust me, there's plenty of psalms that deal with that. They're not shy about it. But, but let's look at Psalms 33. So the first thing you notice, okay, is uh, that it begins with a lot of words like shout and give thanks, make melody, sing and play skillfully, and so all of these are commands uh, to praise God. And, and so the theme here is praise. This is about like, okay, well, how do we, how do we think, how do we use what we see to, to praise God? So 
It's about compl- uh, contemplating some aspect of God and being moved by it. And it's a happy song. It's a song about the ideal. Uh, it's a song about the joy and beauty that's in the word. And sometimes that's a message we need to hear. Not all the time. Sometimes we don't need to hear it. Sometimes we're dealing with something, and this is not the message we need to hear. Uh, hopefully that's the message we want to hear today, but it may not be. And if, if you hear this and you're like almost a little bitter or something about it because you're like, I just don't think that that fits with my experience right now, that's okay. You know, that's, that's the way it works. Like I said, just think again to songs. You know, there's all songs that we like, and some days we want to hear that song, and some days we don't. It's cool. That's why there's 150 psalms. Now, there's something that I find really interesting at the beginning of the psalm. Uh, In verse 3, it says, sing to him a new song. Okay? And this is why I think it's interesting. So that, that, that idea of newness, okay? So it can be translated as like fresh, okay? Some, some, something, so, so new, fresh, great translations of this word. And so what the psalmist wants us to do here is to open our minds to a fresh way of looking at the world. So, so that's the point of the psalm here. He wants, us, he wants to, the psalmist, he or she, wants to lead us uh, to this new uh, way to think about the world to open our minds. But here's what I find interesting about that. This call for newness here, right? What's, what's the subject of the song? If I had to say, like, what do you think is, is this psalm about? You would say it's about, probably it's, it's about creation, right? But like, what's the thing about creation? It's kind of old. <laughs> I mean, it's not new. It happened a long time ago, right? So, where does this, this new song come in? And I think that's the point. What the psalmist wants to do is use the thoughts in this psalm to lead us to a fresh understanding of creation uh, and, and hopefully lead us to a new song. So the psalmist wants to break us out of our old, tired, familiar way of seeing the world and wants to give us a, a vision of a new, fresh, and exciting way of viewing the world that we would probably miss if we were otherwise just thinking of our day-to-day activities getting by. So again, this is the point of poetry. This is the point of a song. I mean, you know, you can think about examples of this, like 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 in songs you listen to. You're like, oh, I didn't really think this was important, but you know, uh, uh, you, you know, you, you hear this song, and you're like, oh, wow, that's a really fresh way to think about, um, you know, the world. I wish I could come up with an example of, of of something right off the top of my head, but I don't have one. But you know what I'm talking about. Now, as we move from the introduction to the central theme of this song we notice that much of the language here is familiar. It's the language of creation from Genesis 1. So we, can, we, we see examples. We hear echoes of Genesis 1 here. For example, verse 9, it describes creation as spoken into existence, right? Now we're familiar with that from Genesis 1. Uh, we read about the waters being gathered together in verse 7. We read about the breath of God in verse six. What do you think the word, what's the Hebrew word for breath here? Anyone, anyone want to, uh, for a hundred? Yes. Mason is on a roll today. You got another a hundred resurrection points, Mason. So Ruach is the Hebrew word here. And that's the word that we use for spirit. 
Okay, so if you remember back in Genesis 1, the world is void and without form, and it says the Spirit was hovering over the waters, the Ruach. So, so this word, breath, that's used here is supposed to recall this uh, Ruach, this creative force of God that orders creation, that God breathes into man and makes him a living creature. Okay, so... Now, if you think about it, we're, we, we've got all these ideas that are meant to make us think back to Genesis 1, the creation story, the seven days of creation, right? And, and if you think about it, like, what was the point of Genesis chapter 1? What was that about? Well, it's about a, a God that imposes order onto the emptiness and chaos of the primordial universe. And the way that God does that is by creating these spaces, by marking out these territories. And he's imposing order into the disorder and then he's filling that world with life and by doing so that allows his creation to flourish that's what genesis one's about and so this psalm is taking those ideas it's acknowledging that it's kind of making us recall that and it does so in some really cool um subtle ways okay so there's a lot about order here uh so uh first of all uh, there's 22 verses in this poem, okay? So Psalms, is uh, it, it's divided into 22 uh, different uh, lines, all right? What is significant about the number 22? 100 resurrection points, so if anybody can tell me this. Hebrew alphabet, Hebrew alphabet Dan, 100 resurrection no, points, right? This year. It is this year, but there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so it's a very common... Uh, for psalms to follow these patterns. And the idea is it's supposed to, to give us this idea of order, like that there's an order to it. So again, Genesis 1 is about, about how God creates order to the disorder of the chaos, and that allows life to flourish. So, so Psalm 33 here is trying to recall that by the number of verses here. Now, not only that, the poem is like clearly divided into like uh, seven stanzas, Okay. I'm not, you don't even get any resurrection points for this, but seven stanzas, creation, sound familiar, right? Yeah, seven days of creation, yeah. yeah that's what, true. yep, that's right. You, 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 you feel what I'm laying down, all right, cool. So the seven reminds us of the days of creation. So again, we can see that the psalm, just by its structure, is celebrating this idea about a balance and order. Which, you know, was like super important to the ancient Israelites, to the Hebrews, because it meant the absence of chaos. Because chaos was like the desert. It was like the sea. And stuff does not, good stuff doesn't come there. Good stuff comes from things like gardens and like forest and stuff. Like where, where abundance and life can happen. So that's Genesis 1. That's great. But what is new? Okay, because that's the question. We're supposed to sing a new song. So what's new about that? Well, we find it in verses four and five, right there at the beginning, okay? Because we don't want to miss it. The Psalms wants us to tell, okay? So look at verses four and five. The word of the Lord is upright. His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love. Now, those are all like, pretty important words of the Old Testament, okay? They're words that are used throughout the Old Testament to describe the character of God. 
Uh, they're all our favorite Hebrew words. So I know, uh, you know, you picked up a little Hebrew. You know, you all, I, I, I saw a lot of nods about the Ruach. So I'm like, but, you know, these are also words like, like mitzpah, uh, zadek, uh, amanu, which means faithfulness. And then, of course, our favorite Hebrew word of all time, hesed. So when it says uh, steadfast love here, which is like this really bad translation, I think, but I don't know if there's a better one because Hetzid is such like a, a big concept of just like how how loyal God is to his people and how much he, he cares and does what he says he's going to do. Um, now, th- those are all words um, that are like super important, like to the theology of, uh, of the Old Testament, and who God is. But here's the thing. Where do you not read those words? Genesis 1. They're not in Genesis one, okay, and so the but 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 so what we're saying here is these are the qualities of God and the character that we find elsewhere in the Hebrew Scripture that testify to God's goodness. And what the psalmist wants us to understand as it is to connect this. He wants to, us to connect this to creation, because the universe is created by a God who is good, and that means that it's filled with God's character. In other words, the world is not just neutral. It's not just a lot of stuff that's there. I mean, maybe it's cool, uh, but it's not, uh, it, it's more than that. It's not purposeless, it's not random. It's ordered by God's justice, by God's faithfulness, okay? <clears throat> by God's hesed. And that's the idea that the psalmist is trying to, uh, to, to introduce us to. And what the psalmist wants us to think about and what the psalmist wants us to meditate about. And ultimately what the psalmist is trying to lead us to look at God and the world and give us this new sense of wonder and awe that results in a new song. That's what the, that's what the, the game the psalmist is playing here. And so that's really the only appropriate response uh, to a God who would give us such a world. Now, as we look further into this psalm, the psalmist is going to shift gears a bit. So that's the big idea about what the psalmist is trying to do. He's trying to connect the character of God with the creation. Now, he, the psalmist then begins to do this. I, I keep saying he, it could be a she, you know, we don't know. Um, but the psalmist shifts gears a bit and begins to draw a series of contrasts between God's rule of creation versus humanity's rule of creation. And again, the point here is to lead us uh, to praise as we contemplate the greatness and superiority of the Lord. So, for example, look at verse 10. Uh, The counsel of the nations and the plans of the people are frustrated. So what we're seeing here is humanity, even powerful people like kings, cannot speak and bring what they want into being. Only God can do that. Uh, And so we get to verse 11 here. So verse 11 is really cool. Okay, so we're going to spend a little bit of time on verse 11. Uh, There's two key differences that verse 11 talks about between humans and the Lord. So the psalm has moved, you know, it's kind of set out its main idea. Now it's trying to draw these contrasts to help us to understand what's going on better. Contrasts are good. It's not, you know, you say something and then you say what it's not. That kind of helps us get a fuller picture, right? Now, there's two contrasts that are pretty key, and it's verse 11, okay? There's 22 verses. What, 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 what does that mean verse 11 is? Halfway through. Halfway through, that's right. Now, 
it should probably come as no surprise to anybody here, but this psalm is set up as a chiasm, right? So you remember what a chiasm is, where the first point and the last point are the same, and then the next, the second point and the penultimate point are the same, and then the third point and the anti-penultimate or whatever that's called. I don't know that vocabulary word. Uh, yeah, are the same. I think it is anti-penultimate. Somebody check me on that. Okay. Yeah, Dale's nodded his head. Yes, fellow nerd. Yes, thank you. And then the very middle point, okay, that, that's halfway through as Ryan just just uh, so, uh, so pointed out, that's like the main point, okay? So what's the main point here? Well, it's this contrast. So verse 11 tells us first, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. So here we have this idea of eternity. What the Lord does stands forever. It's maintained. It's certain. It doesn't corrupt. It doesn't fail. See, humans can't do this. There's no way they can do this. Their works are subject to decay. Their plans fail. Uh, Anybody uh, familiar with, uh, like, there, there's, like, a few poems that, like, everybody knows, right? And this is, like, one of these that, like, everybody knows. Who, who knows Percy Shelley's Ozymandias, right? Yeah, you all know that poem? Yeah, you know, it's about looking at, like, there's this, uh, there's this statue of Pharaoh, uh, one of the Egyptian pharaohs named Ozymandias, and it's, like, fallen on the ground, and it's, like, you know, broken up, and it's, like, decaying, and... The inscription at the bottom looks reads, "Look upon my uh, mighty works," and what what is it? In what? Tremble. In tremble. Yeah, yeah. It's like this fallen, corrupt statue that's like bragging about itself, right? It's like the irony of that, right? So, so you know, this is kind of like that's a great way to think about like bringing another poem. That's like what what idea we're trying to see here, but God's creation doesn't operate this way. It can be counted on. It can be depended on. It can be relied upon for eternity. Why? Because it's been created with God's character, and God's character is faithfulness. It's like, you know, so, so, so that's, that's the idea here. See the connections. Uh, now, this is a big deal, okay, for if you live in the ancient world. Uh, see, we're not as connected with and dependent on the physical world, okay? I mean, we are, but we're not, not, not near as much as the ancient world. And, you know, things like reliability and order were, like, huge, okay? You know, like, our internet goes out and, like, we lose it, you know? But, like, think about how much worse it was, like, back then. You know, that was one of the things that we talked about uh, with the youth when we went camping. Like, that's one of the things that's cool about camping when it kind of relates to this is we're breaking out of our normal rhythms of our lives. And we kind of see ourselves in a different light as a little more connected to the physical world. And one of the things we talked about is like, we had to really hurry up on Saturday night to get our dinner ready. And the reason why was because it was gonna get dark and we couldn't see. And then it was gonna be hard. We don't think about how dependent we are on light and dark because we have lights. But camping all of a sudden like puts us in this different light. See, poetry, worship, all of this, like all going together, giving us new perspectives. That's what we're trying to do here, get new perspectives on things. Now, the second point, though, this is the one that I think is incredible here, okay? And it's easy to miss, okay? So, so verse 11, center of the chiasm, important point. All right, second part. The thoughts of his heart are to all 
generations. Now, we know what the thoughts of God's hearts are. We understand the subject of this line because the point has been telling us that. What are the thoughts of God's hearts? Goodness, faithfulness, hesed, all those like cool Old Testament words, right? Now, here's what I think is really cool about this. Uh, the, the next three words, to all generations. In, in Hebrew, it's actually generations and generations, okay? But it's this word to that I think is like super important. In Hebrew, it's one letter. It's, it, it's just the letter Lamed. It's a preposition, and you just pop it on like the next word. Okay, so it's just one letter, but it's super important. It's doing a lot of work here. Now, here's why it's important. The word, the word here can be translated to, it can also be translated for, F-O-R, okay? So in other words, this is why it's important. The thoughts of the Lord's heart, which is what we talked about, righteousness, faithfulness, justice, steadfast love, all these like really amazing things about God's character are for us. All of those are for us. All right, think about what that means. Think about that for a second. What that means is God's goodness is not just some cool feature about him, like, look at me, I'm God. It's not just like this abstract quality that exists in like isolation. You know, the way, like, like, we would look at, like the Greeks would look at it as like, oh, God's omnipotent, you know? You know, the way Aristotle would look at it, you know? That means that like God, his character, that has filled creation is for us. And that's huge. God's goodness is directed toward us because we are in relationship with God. God has a relationship with humanity. It's that relational aspect again. It's like huge. It's so important. And that's an amazing thought. That means that all the order and beauty and the wonder and the awe of the universe that's revealed all around us is not just God showing off or doing something cool or to, for us to think about, but it's actually meant and directed for, to us. It's purposeful to us. You know, just think about that for a minute. All the order that's in the world. Uh, you know, uh, it, it was recently this weekend. So Friday night, uh, Miles and I actually went to the planetarium, the Moorhead Planetarium, and we were working on uh, the, the uh, Boy Scouts have the uh, astronomy merit badge. Okay, so we work on the astronomy merit badge. So one of the things that you work on is like, you know, how the moon phases work and the eclipses and stuff like that. And it's amazing how ordered and predictable it is. Like the fact that we actually know, you know, uh, that on April 8th, 2024, there's going to be an eclipse. And we actually know exactly where the path of that eclipse is going to be. It's an amazing thought. Um, the next morning, we were going to do a hike and we were working with the compass. And like, it's amazing that we can take this little, you know, compass and figure out the way the world is like, like directions. And that it's like predictable. That's amazing. And we don't, and we over, you know, we almost take that for granted. And even when we think about it, we're like, oh, that's really cool, right? But think about it. A loving God that's full of goodness and faithfulness and hesed and all those like awesome Old Testament things did that for us, right? Now that's a cool thought. 
All right, that's what that's what the psalmist is trying to get across. That's what the psalmist is trying to do here and get you to sing a new song about it because it's amazing because God's revealed his character in creation and that character is good. It is certain. It endures and it's for all humanity forever. And and, and that's what we're supposed to get excited about here. Now, there's one more point that the psalmist is making here that I think is awesome. So look with me in verse 16 and 17. A king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. So again, these are another example of this contrast between God and humanity. That's great, but... Notice the theme of it. Like everything that's being talked about here, war horses and armies and kings, that's all about power, right? All these are images of might and force. And these are the qualities that humanity looks for to gain order and to secure abundance in this world. Uh, in other words, this is what force, this is uh, the, the things, you know, force and power are the traits that humanity puts their faith and salvation in. And what the psalmist wants us to understand is that they fail. They do not do what they claim to do. So, if power is not the way to achieve order and abundance, what is? Well, the psalmist has already told us. It's found in God, and specifically God's creation. In other words, for the psalmist, what beats power? Creativity. Yeah, creation, right? And it's specifically a creation that's based on justice, faithfulness, righteousness, and steadfast love. So what does that mean for us? What are we singing this new song about? We've connected all these ideas, but what does that mean for us? Here's what I think it means. It means if we want to bring hope to this world, if we want to bring order and abundance to this world, how do we do so? Here's how we do it. First, we reject the way of power and might. Okay, that's number one. Instead, what it means is embracing an ethical creativity that's modeled on God's goodness. And that goodness is for, all right, it's not just about us, it's for all, generations and generations. So it's a work of service. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because it's exactly what Jesus went around talking about when he described and enacted the kingdom of God. Right? That's what the Gospels are about. Jesus goes in the Gospels and he's saying, let me tell you about the kingdom of God. And what kind of things does he talk about? Exactly this vision of creation from Psalm 33. A world, a world that's been corrupted and broken by the way of might and force and power. And a humanity that has rejected the goodness of God and failed to bring order and abundance to generations and generations. And how does Jesus say you do it? And Jesus says you do it by purposely and repeatedly rejecting the way of power and might. Jesus was all about that. You know, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword, right? You know, uh, he, 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 he rejects that over and over again. Uh, what does he do instead? Um, he acts creatively by doing things like, like multiplying loaves and fishes, by turning water into wine, by washing feet, by telling better stories about what the world looks like. Like, think about it, like the Good Samaritan, 
like the prodigal son, because those things cause us to look at life in an entirely new and different way. That's what Jesus does. Jesus practices acts of ethical creativity. So now, that is our task. As we think and ponder the world around us and our place in it and God's place in it, our job is to sing a new song, just like the song that ends this, uh, this, this song. Look at verses 20 through 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So here's the thing about this psalm. You know, this sermon, you know, right now, I've communicated to you all the, the, the knowledge, like the information here. This, this sermon's over. But here's the thing, you're not finished with this psalm yet. Because what you're supposed to do is continue to ponder these ideas. And that's going to take different forms, you know? Like it may be like when you're sitting down and like plotting out bearings with a compass, okay? It may be all kinds of different ways that you're going and interacting and the way that you view uh, nature and the world and your relation among it. And what you're going to do is you're going to look for the grace and abundance that's in creation that God has given for you. And that's going to lead you to examine your life. And it's going to get you to think about God's creation and its goodness and to seek ways to inject that goodness into this world through what I'm going to call random acts of creativity, right? And in doing so, you'll come away with a fresh and new way of looking at the world as you trust in hope. And that's what it means when we talk about uh, all of these uh, churchy uh, concepts, things like, you know, I always use this phrase, practice resurrection. But it's also what it means when we read, be a servant of God. It's what it means to follow Christ. And it's what faith looks like because we're hoping in this world that God has created and ordered. And here's my hope. I hope that we can bring this new songs to ourselves and that we can also sing it to the world.